Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 8? We've come now to verse 31, so we will pick up there with Christ's teaching in the last, of course, the, the, temp, the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles is ending and Christ is teaching there in the temple. So we continue and pick up where we were last time. Now remember last time, the last verse said that many were believing on him, on Jesus. Therefore Jesus was saying to the Jews, and I want us to notice four things here in this next phrase. Those having believed in him, all right, the crux of the statement is, you are my disciples. How does Christ then identify his disciples? The great commission that our Lord has given to us is that we are to go out into the world and as we go, we are to be making disciples. So what's a, if, that's our, if that's our job, and this is the important thing for us to do, having been commanded so by our Lord, how does Christ define a disciple? Number one, someone who believes in him. Now let's think of what this rests on, all of the previous teaching of Christ, really all the way back before before he comes into the temple, before the Feast of the Tabernacles and his teaching before that, prior to that, on back into two or three chapters earlier, Christ's teaching is that only the Father can draw us. We cannot just go to the Father. We cannot just determine our own salvation. It comes from above. You must be born from above, Christ said. The Father must draw you to the Son. All of this is in Christ's teaching prior to us coming here in John. He presents himself as the essence of salvation, bread and water. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That was something difficult for these Jews to receive. Perhaps even his disciples might not completely understand until after the Lord's Supper and then his death on the cross. And they noted how he gave himself for his own. Christ then in this teaching is declaring that there is no work. You can't obey the law of Moses. You can't claim to be a son of Abraham. You can't claim anything that will save you in and of yourself. You cannot project yourself into salvation. You must have a savior. Christ has come to save us. Now, he, this is what he continues. And so then Jesus, the previous verse saying that many believed on him, Jesus continues, here's how you can be, here's how you are a disciple. Number one, we believe in Jesus. That means that we have to forsake ourselves. We have to die to ourselves. We have to understand that there's no good thing in us, that we are born into a ruined and fallen race and that our, our human nature, the natural man, is to sin. This is how we are. 
but Christ changes us. The spirit of Christ, and then of course Christ himself with his death on the cross, which is just about six months away from this particular event. His death on the cross pays the penalty and releases us, those who are in Christ, releases us from the guilt and, and penalty of sin. Eternal life is ours. There is a penalty upon the flesh. And the writer to the Hebrews says that it's appointed unto man once to die. I have that appointment. You have that appointment. Most of the human race will have to meet that appointment. Now there is a remnant of the human race at the time of the rapture of the church who will not see death, but the dead in Christ will rise first. And then the remaining ones after that. So those who have believed in him, you can't be a disciple of Christ. You can't be a learner of Christ, a follower of Christ, unless number one, you believe in him. So then you have to understand and accept that he is the savior. This is a divine thing. This is not a self-determined thing. God Almighty comes to you and pricks your heart. The Holy Spirit convicts you and you're drawn by the Father to the Son. This is a thing from above. That's why it is so profound that we are changed by it. And our desires and our path in life, all of those things are different after we come into Christ. So Christ says to be a disciple, number one, you believe in him. And then number two, you abide in my word. If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples. To abide up here in the text means to, to stay, manity. Uh, the Greek word, it means to stay, to abide, to remain. This is where you live. As you abide or live or remain in his word, it is obedience. It is, it is to learn his word. And then is, it is to walk the path of life in such a way that we seek to be obedient to his word. So here's discipleship. A believer, a true believer, and then someone who abides in his word. This means that you are, you are a student of the Bible. It means that uh, you have a, a Bible study time that is regular, should be daily. It's even better if it's more than one, times, one time a day. You abide, you remain, you travel, you live in his word, by the grace of God, thankfully, and I say it humbly, of course, my, my daddy was a preacher. My mama was a preacher's daughter. My granddaddy was a preacher. And Bible study and prayer was just as normal in life, thank God for it, in life as sitting down and eating a meal together. Prayer time, Bible study time, to listen to the word, to be told to go and study the Bible and pray before I, when I'm an older a teenager, be sure that you study the word and that you pray before you go to sleep. This becomes 
This becomes a natural thing. I always enjoyed picking out my favorite stuff until I was 16 years old. And I remember at the age of 16, I decided I was going to read the Bible all the way through. And you can burn me at the stake if you want to, but I, did, I just did not like the King James Bible. So I found me a new living Bible. And I bought it with my own money, so I'm okay. Of course, my daddy was a King James guy. But I was e it was easier for me to read, and I read that thing like a novel or something, and I, I decided I was going to spend a year, and I divided that how many pages there were into 365 days, and I had so many pages, I would read a night. But I found that I couldn't put it down. You know, I loved those parts, you know, where that woman stabbed that fat king and lost her knife in his belly. That was great stuff to me. Oh man, lost a good knife in the belly of a fat guy. So I really enjoyed Bible. It came to life to me, you know. So all of my life, and by the way, I finished, I finished going through the Bible before the end of the summer. So I, I got ahead of myself. And the Bible has been very meaningful, of course, to me all of my life. And it's, the Bible claims of itself that it is alive. It can only speak to born-again Christians. It's meaningless to people who are dead in sin. They don't, they don't get it. They don't know what they're reading. It's confusing. They don't understand it. But to those of us who have been born from above, the Word of God lives it's alive. And you know, you never get the same thing out of it twice. You read the thing th through and you come to certain passages and certain passages will speak to you in a different way. You, you grow and you're building it. This is, this is discipleship. Here's what happens. I can tell you by experience. You grow more intimate with the Lord. He's not just some grandfatherly figure who blows clouds out of his mouth. He becomes real. <laughs> and he becomes a part of your inner circle, closer than family. And you walk more and more in life realizing that you can talk to him. That you should share everything with him and ask him which direction to go and what to do about this. Even the smallest of decisions. And you grow in that intimacy with the Almighty. Jesus becomes your friend. I had a staff member once who in his testimony says, here's how I pray every day. I sit in one chair and I place an empty chair just there facing me and in my heart Jesus is sitting in that chair and I will spend a long time talking to Jesus well that's okay the thing is you are intimate with the father through the son and the son is a friend who sticks closer than a brother you abide in his word you live in it you remain in it you stay in it 
and he becomes more and more real and his power becomes more expansive. When I was a kid and I tried to have some kind of regular Bible study, I had certain thoughts about God the Father and God the Son. But I came to realize more and more how all-powerful the Christ of God is. Matter of fact, we've studied that in John chapter 1. We studied it some months back. That he is God, a very God, who came forth from the Godhead, and he is the one who accommodated himself to time and space, and thus created time and space and He comes into it. We'll talk more about that as we get through this thing. And he intimately becomes a part of his creation such that he has come to save his elect. And as we go through time, they are drawn to him in both testaments, really, when you study it. Here's how Jesus then defines a disciple. You believe in him and you abide in his word. Then truly you are his disciple. Now, here's two things happen. Here are the two benefits, the two results of that. The first one, number three here, you will know the truth. When you engage in Bible study, of course, you're in the world, but not of the world. But you're surrounded by the world. The more you realize how totally opposed the world is to God and his Christ. You don't necessarily start out there, but as you grow and abide in his word, the more you realize how counterfeit the world is. All of the determinations of the world, the directions of the world, the drawings, the the callings of the world, the power of the world, The world is not calling us to God and his Christ. And the world lies to us. And we are besieged by untruth, especially today. So many counterfeit things. How can I know what to believe? Well, just cast all of that away and cast yourself upon the word of God. Precious. Holy word of God, follower of Jesus, abider in his word, living in his word to be his disciple, to study it. And I tell you, this living word, as I said earlier, is not the same. You go through it the first time, man, it speaks to you in a certain way. You go through it the second time. In addition to how it spoke to you the first time, you've grown and you see more things out of it than you could see the first time. And that goes ad infinitum. The unsearchable riches of what God gives to us in his word. It's an eternal word. Your word, O Lord, abides forever, said the psalmist. So into the ages of the ages, The word of God, the Bible, the psalmist says, your word, O Lord, have you placed above all of your name. Now think about that. The eternity of God, the 
there's no way to use a human word to describe God. If you, if you insert a word, then you've laid some sort of human definition to the eternal one. It's impossible to do. That's why we're told by the Father, we're told by God in the, in, in the word that we'll never know him completely. Only as he has revealed himself through Christ. We saw it in John earlier, remember? No man, no man has seen God in time, but the Son has come to declare him. So this is how we know God in the best way that we can. Because he, we, we live in what? Three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Four dimensions. But can you, can you put a limited number of dimensions on God? No. He created dimensions and he could call forth what we'd think of as an infinite number of So we can't think outside of time and space. It's impossible even to ask the question like, where did God come from? You can't, you, you, you're putting human words to describe deity and that's just impossible. But the son has come to declare. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to show you God in the best and fullest way, then you can understand him. In the human realm and in time and space, and we've seen it already and he'll say it further, I'm God. That's what Christ says. The deity of Christ. Now, you will know the truth. If you abide in his word, truth is divinely declared. What if we had no scripture? Everyone would be a source of truth. Utter, utter chaos and madness all the time. God gives us his truth according to his design and purpose. And the truth lives, the word lives, and it speaks to us differently every time we look at it in a second or a third or a fourth way, whatever. And we grow in that word and the truth becomes clearer and clearer to us and we are more and more outfitted to make the contrast between absolute truth and everything else. If in any whit it opposes the word of God, it is not truth. It's not truth. So then, you will know the truth then what does the truth do? The truth will set you free. Now here's the implication that Christ makes. You are not free. You are enslaved. You do not have freedom in your existence. But if you are my disciple and you believe in me and abide in my word, then the word will set you free. The truth will set you free. You will understand the truth. The truth will be revealed to you. Absolute truth. How can you summarize it? Well, man in and of himself is a fallen creature. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He's bound for hell unless God intervenes graciously. Suppose God never intervened graciously. Well, then we would all Go to hell because none of us do good and we are not therefore 
in any way set or outfitted for or qualified, if that's a right word to use, for God's heaven. He can't allow sin in his presence. He's a just God. He's a perfect God. God has a plan, however, to deal with it through his son, Jesus Christ, the only one Savior. So then we are taught in the truth that there's light and there's darkness. And that the light dispels the darkness. And that's why the leaders of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, fight the light. Because the light exposes the darkness. So there's light and darkness. Here is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we are taught in absolute truth that this, the kingdom of this world, that all of the nations, including Israel of the Old Testament, although they have a covenant, and God irrevocably will in his grace deliver them in the right way at the right time, then there's this times of the Gentiles, the times that's where we are now. Nation rises against nation, kingdom against kingdom. We're in, the, we're in the throes of that today. Some tell us we are, we're on the brink of World War III because of the events in Europe. Let me tell you why I comfortably rest regardless of what the world is telling me. God is sovereign. So then, okay, if it happens, it is because it is the will of God. And God has told us that the times of the nations, the times of the Gentiles, the times of the nations will come to an end. And when the Gentiles' time comes to an end, every nation in the world just ruptures with trouble to a great war. Such that it would seem there would be total annihilation, except that Christ comes again in power and glory when they are gathered at Armageddon. And he delivers us. He always delivers us. Those who are his own, no one who is unsaved enters into his kingdom. Only the saved folks enter into his kingdom. I know what the truth is. I know what the Bible says about the world and the kingdom of this world and the God of this age. I understand this so-called cosmic struggle is not really a struggle at all. Christ wins all the way through. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered, we're seed of Abraham. Now in the text, it's a proper, they use it as a, a proper name. And we have never been in bondage to anyone. How do you say you will become free? Now, of course, they would have known that they were in bondage to the Egyptians, their Passover and the Feast of Tabernacle, all, that, all of that bespeaks of their 400 years of slavery. And then, of course, the Babylonian slave. But what they're saying is, even in the times wherever we may have been wandering as Israelites, we never left the true worship of our God. So, you know, you can read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example. So many stories in the Bible about how people refused to abandon the worship of their God, true and living God. So that's what they're saying. We've never been in bondage like that. How do you say 
you will become free. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone practicing the sin is a slave of the sin. Now, the, sin, the definite article is used in the Greek text. You can see it there. So, everyone is enslaved to the sin. What is the sin? Well, the sin is the sin of human nature. It is the sin of fallenness. It is the sin of damnation apart from the grace of God who brings us and plucks us out of that and puts us in Christ. Only God can do that. We can't do that ourselves. Everyone practices the sin and everyone is a slave of sin. Now the slave does not abide in the house forever. Now what about the master's house? It's a place of, it's a place of privilege. Um, it's a place of pleasure. And this is where the son lives. The son lives in the house of his father. This is where the son abides and he abides there forever. He's never been out of the house. The slaves on the other hand, they don't live in that house. But if the son will set you free, indeed, you will be free. You will be given sonship. You will become, you will become a son of the father in his house. Adoption. You call him Abba, father. And he lovingly brings you in his house, into his house by this, by this adoption. You are reborn and you live, you live with those privileges and those pleasures as, as living in sonship. So this is what he says. Therefore, if the son will set you free, indeed, you will be free. No longer enslaved as a slave to live outside the house. But liberated spiritually and come to live with the blessed son of God. With with the call of God in Christ to be a part of his family. I know that you're the seed of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word receives no place in you. Now, Christ is speaking to the Jew Jewish rulers. We've seen in previous verses and previous Sundays that the leadership of the Jews was seeking to kill Jesus. Christ, we saw also in this context earlier that Christ, the, the Christ, the people were divided over Jesus. The Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, they had a good thing going as long as they could lay these traditions of men and their definition of the law into the hearts of, of Jewish people. But Christ comes and dispels all of that with the truth. The law, the law was never given as a means of salvation. It just reveals our need for salvation. That's all it does. Our need to be saved. So they hate Christ. And he says, you don't have any place in your life for my word. 
So naturally, being a part of the, the world, you have to try to kill me. That becomes your job. That's the job of this world. To kill off Christ in his people, in his church. That which I have seen with the Father, I speak. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, our father is Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has spoken the truth to you that I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the works of your father. Therefore, they said to him, we have not been born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, let's go back up here and look at this closely. In Genesis 18, in a, a theophany, in an Old Testament appearance of Christ, It is the son of God who accommodates himself to time and space. So in the distance comes a mighty looking master and two servants behind him. Abraham saw him in his 90s, Sarah in her 90s. Abraham is drawn to him and he runs out and he begins to worship him and he bows down. He tells his servants, prepare the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast. We're going to sit down and eat with God. So with great respect, Abraham brings the Lord and his two servants, his two angels. He serves them a great meal. Mm. And the Lord says to Abraham, about this time next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. And here's this woman in her 90s, right? She's listening. You wouldn't believe it. You, you, you wouldn't believe this, but the woman of the house was actually seeking to listen to what was happening. She would almost fall out the flap of the tent. So she was pressed up to listen. And the Lord said, about this time next year, Sarah will have a baby. Well, she laughs. <laughs> to which the Lord replies, is anything too hard for me? About this time next year. And you'll call him, you'll call him Isaac, laughter, Isaac. Now, at the close of the meal, the Lord stands up his two angels and the Lord says, I've come to tell you something. There's great sin in the cities of the plains, Sodom, Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy it, all of it. And then Abraham begins his, well, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there's, you know, he goes through all of that until he realizes that the only ones who are righteous, declared so by the Lord, are Lot, his family. That's why the angels said to Lot, can't do anything until you get out of here. 
Wrath is not meant for the people of God. So Abraham was somewhat saddened realizing that this vast population of people across the plains were going to be destroyed by God. Now, back to here. Oh, we're children of Abraham. We do the works of Abraham. No, you don't. Abraham saw me. Abraham knew me and I knew him. You're trying to kill me. Abraham worshiped me. He believed my word. We fellowshiped together. He spoke to me of his purpose and plan, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you were the children of Abraham like that, you wouldn't be doing these things. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the works of your father. You're seeking to destroy the son of God. Therefore, they said to him, We've not, we were not born of fornication. Now, this is probably a slam against Jesus because if you read several history books that confirm that this was a strong rumor among Jews that Jesus was illegitimate, that his father was a Roman soldier and that his mother was a Jewish prostitute. So this is how they described the birth of Jesus. And so they said, we weren't born of fornication. We have one father who is God. Now, take four things from this. Number one, why do you not understand my speech? They couldn't. They were of their father, the devil. Here's why. Because you are not enabled. You are not able to hear my word. It's hidden from you. You don't know what I'm saying because you're not one of mine. You are of your father, the devil. Your father is the devil. My father is the father in heaven. And you of your father, the devil, therefore you desire to do the desires of your father. What are his desires? Murder. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has not stood in the truth. He rejects the truth. Because there is no truth in him. He's the father of lies. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and a father of lies. All lies are to be attributed to the devil who seeks to confuse the way and oppose the truth. Because now I speak the truth. You do not believe in me. Here comes the real kicker. This is beautiful. Jesus says, who here convicts me concerning sin? Who will stand up and call me an open sinner? Come on, any of you. You've accused me of blasphemy. Who's going to tell me that he has seen me actively sin or concerning sin? If I speak the truth, no answer, no answer. Okay. You can't attribute sin to me. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe in me if I have no sin? No answer. 
final response from Christ. He who is of God hears the words of God. Because of this, you do not hear. Because you are not of God. Invitation after invitation is extended. Sermon after sermon. Bible teaching session one after another. People come and they sit in the presence of it. Some of them having never come to Christ who will openly tell you they are not believers and they walk away the same way. What is the conclusion? Well, at least at that point in time, all you can say is you don't hear it because you're not of God. That would frighten me. You do not hear because you are not of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. The plan and the way, it's simple. Admit that you're a sinner, according to the Bible. Believe in Jesus, like the Bible says, and call on him to save you. We are given this promise for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can't do that in and of yourself. God draws you to that. In just a moment, we'll have our prayer of benediction. If you're here today and you would come to the call to Christ, we have deacons and their wives just as you exit in rooms right across the hall. You'll see them. They are prepared to sit down with you and pray with you and help you to understand the call of God. Maybe you're here and you're already a believer, but God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. They are prepared to help you there as well. Whatever your need, you step in on the way as God speaks to your heart. You step in and speak with them and let them prayerfully speak with you about the Lord and his call in your life. Would you prayerfully stand all over this room and we'll have our benediction. <laughs>